0: Welcome to this episode of IG Talk with Robert Smallwood, where we feature interviews with IG leaders from around the globe, as well as discussions of IG news, events, and best practices. Hi, today on IG Talk, we have Suzanne DeChico, and she is Director of Information Governance at SEI Investments in Philadelphia. Uh, Suzanne, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you, Robert. Happy to be
0: here. That's great. Uh, Suzanne has been through uh, the IGP training as well as the SIGO certification training, and uh, I actually met her uh, for the first time in person in New York when we were doing an event up there a, a few years ago. And um, Suzanne, can you just tell us kind of your journey to information governance? You you started out as a computer science major and 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 got into software development. And where did things go uh, sort of from there?
1: Sure. So I've been with my current firm for almost 18 years. So I did come in on the technology track um, on the software development side for a technology tool that we were building as part of our financial services offering at SEI and worked in development of that tool for probably six or seven years, migrated slowly into support of that tool and then migrated over into other areas of the business and at the time when I was in another part of the business of SCI, we were um, we had an audit finding around our boxes at Iron Mountain and it was uncovered that we had about 50,000 boxes at 19 different locations across the country at Iron Mountain and we weren't managing the Inventory. We weren't managing it to bring it down. We were only adding to that inventory, and so my role was born out of that audit finding. So, um, my original project, you would say, for um, and the impetus for creating that role was to address and build a program around how we were going to manage the information that was being stored in those boxes on an ongoing basis, and how we would ultimately, hopefully, dispose of whatever boxes we didn't need at Iron Mountain. And that was, like I said, that that was probably, gosh, 11 years ago, maybe 10 years ago that that role um, was started and now has completely evolved into this role of director of information governance where now we look at everything, structured, unstructured data, um, our da- our information at Iron Mountain, which we've now shrunk down to less than 20,000 boxes since,
0: mm-hmm. since so- that initial finding. So you had an a issue, you had lots of retention and no disposition for a while. Huh?
1: Correct, correct.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, but you did a little bit of change management work too there, didn't you?
1: Sure, yes. Yeah. So as just as part of the uh, software development lifecycle and being part of that, that team that was managing technology. So yeah, getting into understanding changes being brought in from a technology perspective and people, processes, technology and managing that just communicating that managing release management around the change management of those um, of the technology that we were building so bringing awareness to all levels of change involved in software development
0: and that applies today really with information governance change management is a big part of information governance and uh I'm, i'm i'm thinking, I'm hoping that that kind of crystallized, it came together with the SEGO training, because we talk about all these different facets of information governance. So it's, it's privacy, data protection, it's cybersecurity, it's e-discovery, it's records management, it's content services and change management even. So all of those all of those pieces uh, pulling together. So uh, tell us what, what kind of challenges have you seen or let's say what changes have you seen in the last three or four years in the information governance, the approach to information governance or, or just changes in your organization? Um, I'm wondering if the move to remote work, did that uh, cause some new things to happen at your uh, firm?
1: Sure. Yeah. The most obvious change in the move to remote work is, is extremely heightened awareness on privacy and, you know, when we have a we have a company with a lot of young professionals so folks who have roommates you know they might be you know working at home and dealing with sensitive information client information account numbers social security numbers and they could you know have 3-4 roommates who have you know maybe could have eyesight of the information that these folks are working on and just really stressing to folks who haven't been in the workforce for a really long time The need to have very strong controls around how you're handling that data, disposing of any, you know, data, hard copy data in your little home office area, logging out, you know, locking your PC before you get up and go and get a drink of water. Things that you take for granted when you're in an office setting or when you've been in business for a really long time, working in a corporate uh, setting for a long time. So that that I think was our, our biggest challenge. Um, as it pertains to just information governance, protecting data, protecting our clients' data while we were, you know, 99% of our workforce was working from home. And it was just coincided very nicely with this whole shift and extreme focus on privacy as an industry. Um, When we talk about information governance, you can't talk about information governance without talking about privacy. So at the same time, literally, Two, three months before the pandemic struck, we had just hired our first chief privacy officer mm-hmm. at SEI. So um, it just, I think we had excellent foresight. It was just good good and bad timing all around with uh, that heavy focus on working from home privacy and, and partnering up information governance with privacy in order to have a strategy around all of those things at the time when the pandemic
0: hit. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you had some policy changes and some new controls that you put in place.
1: Absolutely so we had to group get get grouped together pretty quickly. We had some pretty good practices already documented then um, when we had to put it in the context of working from home it was just a heightened awareness around a lot of those things that we uh, probably didn't audit folks on a lot. the office you know we would do quarterly reviews of people you know clean desk policies those type of things but this was a reminder that every day you have to have a clean desk because of the fact that you you know you have other individuals who live with you in in a in a in a living space and making sure that if we had to change a policy we had to get it out there and communicate it we used a lot of you know we used a lot of communication methods not just an email so we I put together a a video of working from home and did some animation sequences, working with our marketing team to really stress some of those policies that were existing or the changes or the upgrades to those policies so that we could really um, get people's attention instead of, you know, just constantly spewing out emails with the policy information in them. Mm -hmm. So It forced us to think differently about those things, too.
0: So how do you monitor the enforcement of those controls? Are there some tools that you use?
1: So uh, when we talk about uh, when we talk about controlling sensitivity of data, like in our unstructured repositories, we do use technology for that. So we are we are a, a SailPoint shop. We are a Verona's shop. So we are constantly monitoring and refining who has access to what data, um, where there is stale data. And uh, we work with records coordinators all throughout our organization where um, we have initiatives that are tied, you know, based on timing, whether it's a quarterly focus or an annual focus on stale data and then sensitive data and who has access and what, what team members still have inherited access from previous roles to other data other than your team's data. So. Um, those controls are what we focus on from an information governance perspective, but then we, we do have you know, our audit teams that will come in and depending on risks or focus on any given year or quarter, they kind of help to reinforce some of those controls. Like I mentioned, the scanning for clean desk policy and, um, and general retention type of policy enforcement wherever we can. Mm -hmm. depending on depending on the
0: focus Mm -hmm. and uh is your organization moving to uh microsoft 365
1: we are yes we are
0: Uh, how far along are you on that journey
1: so we are deliberately taking our time but trying to be responsive to the business pressuring us to do it as soon as possible Uh, so we are focused on sensitivity uh, and labeling of sensitive data right now in advance of migrating to um, Microsoft 365. So we have been leveraging our Verona's tools for labeling the sensitivity of the data on our network file shares in anticipation of uh, a better user experience around knowing how sensitive the data is, what can be shared, what can be shared internally, externally with our third parties, with uh, within our teams and the retention around that data. So we are moving in that direction. We're, t- we're partnering with our privacy team and our IT teams in order to be very deliberate about how we turn on certain, certain features, how we on- turn on um, Azure Information Protection, all of those things which we are trying to do in a very linear fashion and not do it all at once. So being very focused and Right now, we're just focused on email. Our initial rollout, uh, as part of the overall M three sixty five, we'll focus on email and limiting retention around email, which is something we have never done before.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, good. And I'm wondering, do you have a formal steering committee for your IG program?
1: Yes, in fact, that you know, I learned in your book, Robert, that that is something that is key to the success of your program. So when I built, when I started building my program, the first thing I did was go to our most senior leaders in the organization and tell them what we needed to do as an organization. This is well in advance of GDPR Mm -hmm. and um, how we needed their support in order to be successful because we were engaging these record coordinators all throughout the organization. And we're talking, you know, over 100 record coordinators that were voluntold that this was going to be their role in order to make the program successful. So the steering committee meets quarterly and we have very lively discussions around initiatives that we are focused on and the progress of those initiatives. And, you know, they're kind of used as a tiebreaker sometimes for, you know, evaluating the risks associated with what we're going to address next. Privacy is a very big a big discussion in each of those quarterly meetings. Our chief privacy officer is a chief contributor to those discussions and those meetings. So, yeah, I would say they are absolutely essential and have been key to the success of the program so far.
0: And then do you have a formal executive sponsor?
1: We do. It's uh, it's my my, I report to the chief risk officer and the chief risk officer reports to our chief financial officer, who is our executive sponsor.
0: Oh, great. Yes. I haven't uh, found too many cases of that, uh, the CFO being executive sponsor, but I, I, I've tried to make the case for it because, you know, the CFO is, is charged with protecting the brand's value. And if you have a breach uh, that's going to affect your value, it's going to affect the way consumers view your company. And you're a public company, right?
1: Yes, we are.
0: So, so that would be, um, um, you know, uh, could be a major hit uh, just from the brand equity standpoint, and the stock price standpoint.
1: Absolutely. And I and I also think having it be the chief financial officer makes it uh, pertinent to the entire organization. So we're not just in technology. We're not a technology team. It's not a question of, you know, what technology are we going to use to protect our information? The information is spread throughout the entire organization. Our chief financial officer is responsible for the entire health of the organization. And so I feel like it's a natural fit in yeah. the part of the organization.
0: And the reporting goes up through your chief risk officer and you know I like to say a lot of times information governance is really a, an information risk discipline. It's about Absolutely. information risk management. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey so uh let's pivot a little bit just uh from a personal standpoint what do you do in your in your spare time? What do you do on the weekends or uh, when you take a break?
1: Um well I you know I'm I have a College age daughter, and uh, she lives about a thousand miles away. So I do have a little more free time these days. But I've been a volunteer with Make a Wish for gosh now probably over twelve or fifteen years. I've lost track. So that's something that was a challenge during the pandemic was to be active in that because that requires you to meet one on one with the wish child to understand what wish they're thinking about. Um, so we had to figure out ways to do that virtually. Um, but that's something that I've always enjoyed doing. And uh, it's definitely something that's provided a lot of a lot of, uh, grat- gratifying experiences for me.
0: Yeah, I like your, your title there, your wish grantor.
1: Yes, yeah, yes. So there's a lot of different roles within the organization. It's mostly a volunteer organization, but there are some individuals who are on the payroll at Make-A-Wish, and they are phenomenal. They are the folks who have, you know, the... The connections to reach out to celebrities if it's a celebrity wish. And um, my role is very specifically to go in, meet the wish child and the wish family, and try to make it as comfortable of a, a, a situation as possible because sometimes it can be very, very shy. And one thing that most folks don't know about Make a Wish is that the child is not um, always on death's door. So a wish child who can be anywhere from, you know, 12 months to 18 years old can just has to have faced a a life threatening situation. So you can be fully recovered and healthy and still eligible for a wish, because the idea behind make a wish is that you are recognizing that a child was going through an enormous Horrible situation where they had to think about doctors all the time, and they, you know, were always either in the hospital, out of the hospital, on medicine, or you know, rehab, you know, recuperating. And the wish is really for that time for them to just not be thinking about being a, you know, a sick kid. So um, a lot of people don't know that you don't have to be dying in order to be eligible for a wish from Make a Wish. So yeah, I, I to try to get that message out there.
0: Yeah, that's good information. I thought it was, uh, you know, basically like a child's last dying wish.
1: Right. No, um, not at all. Which is which is great. And I think that's just a, that's a testament to the advances in medicine these days. You know, and the fact that people are more aware of these organizations, so they're contributing more money, and so uh, we are very fortunate to be able to have. Uh, I, I believe I don't think we've had a year in the in the Philadelphia region where we haven't. We've always been able to fund all the wishes that have come our way and you can nominate, you know, social workers can nominate, doctors can nominate kids for wishes. Um, I've told people to make sure that they nominate their own child for wishes because they're eligible. Because yeah, it's, it's it's a catchy situation. Like you, you don't want to think my child's not eligible, my child's not dying. And I try to remind people that that's not Those are not the circumstances. The circumstances are just to have faced a really, really horrible situation and come through it on the other side, and you're still eligible for a wish as well.
0: That's fantastic. That's great work. That's really wonderful that you're doing that. I appreciate you spending the time with us today, and uh, we'll see you out there uh, online and hopefully in person soon. Yes. And, uh, Suzanne, I appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for being on the program. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. Always good to talk to you
0: yeah take care yeah thank you for listening to another episode of ig talk the leading voice in the industry which features ig leaders news events and best practices tune in next time to stay up to date on the changing world of
1: information governance